period in history that involves monumental change has always begun with one person taking a stand. When government is tyrannical, the people of God have a duty to not follow and not comply. And I just need to know who is willing to stand. can't be what you do. It has to be who you are. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Beyond the Soundbite, this new little interview series that I'm doing, and I'm here today with Chris Ann Hall, <laughs> who is, Chris Ann is a constitutional attorney. She is a Russian linguist. She is an army veteran. She is a, uh, a, a mother. Mm -hmm. She is a pastor's wife, and she spends her days now traveling around the country talking about the Constitution and educating everybody from legislators to everyday Americans on what the limitations of government are, and how they can begin to turn the tide and bring us back to a more constitutionally centered government. Did I say that fairly? Was that pretty good? Pretty good. We teach, uh, I teach everybody from middle school uh, to high school students, college students, all the way up to legislators and uh, law enforcement. Okay. And you are, I, I found you, somebody sent me your, I'd, I'd actually listened to your podcast before, but oh, thank you. I, you came up again during the Oregon crisis. <laughs> Uh, with something, a, a short video that you did on, on YouTube, and I was amazed at your ability to, to recall, because I, I read off a teleprompter some, and I could tell there was no teleprompter there. <laughs> no, I was in Haiti. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you, were, you just decided to pick up the cell phone and, and start recording, mm -hmm. and it was just, you know, boom, 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 and I linked to it in, uh, and mentioned it in one of my, in one of my shows mm -hmm. and linked the video to everyone, and, and I said, uh, I sh I've got to get her on the show. And then you ended up, I found out a little bit later on that you were here in Kansas mm -hmm. City uh, in the area. And I immediately called your assistant. She was inundated, apparently, yes. <laughs> with phone calls and, yes. and requests. And, uh, and we managed to, to pick you up. And so I'm so glad that you're here and sharing your, your knowledge and expertise with us. But I, I thought we would start just by talking a little bit about um, where we're at, because in, let's talk excuse me, specifically about uh, the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Because the Supreme Court has made itself the arbiter of what is constitutional and what isn't. That's right. And I've always found that, uh, that belief that the Supreme Court gets to decide what's considered constitutional, given the fact that the Constitution was created to bind down the three branches, branches of federal government, one of which being mm -hmm. the, the Supreme Court and the judicial branch. Mm -hmm. So does the Supreme Court, is that part of their mandate in the Constitution to interpret the Constitution? And if not, how did we get there? The, the job of the, of the Supreme Court within the language of the Constitution is to be the arbiter and the judge for things that have been made federal. A lot of times people read uh, that language in the Constitution and, and talk about the, the duties of the Supreme Court and the, co and the federal courts, and they 
stop before they get to the end of the statement. And in the end of the statement says, on, on matters made federal. So the only thing that the Supreme Court has real jurisdiction over are, things, are the powers that have been delegated to the federal government. They don't have jurisdiction over state matters. They don't have jurisdiction over internal state matters. They only have jurisdiction on matters made federal. And uh, that's a very limited number of things. Those are the enumerated powers right. laid out inside the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So how do we get from a place where, where that is the original intent and the, the, the Supreme Court now chooses to rule on virtually anything that they decide they want to have a hand in? Well, interestingly enough, that's just the way it works throughout the centuries, and our framers knew that. Uh, throughout the centuries, one of the mechanisms of the courts or of government to take power from the people and consolidate them itself is through the corruption of the court systems because it's the easiest way. People want to think that the judicial system is an independent tribunal, an independent uh, entity that will be uh, somehow neutral in all these decisions. Fair and uncorruptible. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. And uh, which is uh, ironic because throughout history that is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Part of what I teach is the history of the Constitution. And in that history, there's 700 years that it took to write our Constitution. Our Declaration and our Independence, our Bill of Rights, are built of five documents written over 700 years that formed the British Constitution. There's nothing new or novel in any of our documents. And as a matter of fact, everything in these three documents can trace back to these five. And the reason that we kept having these revolutions against kings for 700 years is because after a certain period of time, the king would co-opt the court system, replacing judges who would follow, wouldn't follow the law, but follow the king. And so our framers, by creating a federal government with a judiciary and then believing that they enumerated specific powers to keep it bound in a box, uh, felt like they were building uh, enough protection of the people's liberty. But you know, they said something else. They realized that the Constitution is what they called a parchment barrier, meaning the Constitution, and I know this is offensive to some people to say, but it's the truth of the matter is, and our framers knew it, our Constitution is nothing but a document with ink on it. And they knew that our Constitution could not stop the government. That's why they called it a parchment barrier. It's just paper. It means nothing. It's just words on paper. Right. So they expected the people to be uh, jealous, jealously watching the federal government, diligently protecting their liberty, and they would be the stopping block. And uh, the republic is what makes the difference here. When you say the people, mm -hmm. talk to me about what, because in a sense, the states came together as mm -hmm. independent states mm -hmm. and said, we want to join into a union, mm -hmm. if I understand my American history correctly, we want to join into a union. And they formed the federal government, mm -hmm. used the Constitution in an attempt to bind down the, uh, the federal government. So when it, but many times inside the Constitution, it says the people. Mm -hmm. Does the Constitution specifically refer to individuals, or do they refer to the states? Is it is it an individual's responsibility, I guess, to when the federal government circumvents its authority? Is it the individual's responsibility to stand up to that oppression? Is it the is it the state's responsibility? Is the, should the state be providing cover for the individual? What was the expectation of the founders when when they drafted the Constitution? Who was who was physically going to be the check? 
Well, the, the simple answer to that is yes. Because everything that you said is absolutely correct. Because government has no power without the force of the people. Government doesn't exist without the people. Remember, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. The thing that makes us different from the kingdoms that we came from is the fact that we're a republic. We have, uh, and, and you're, <laughs> I'm laughing because you covered like 12 years of history in that one little yeah. statement. And so what we need to realize is that the states created the Constitution. The Constitution is a contract. It's a contract between the states that, crea that created the federal government. So the Constitution really uh, is, not, is not just a limitation of the federal government, it's the creation of it. Because without the Constitution, the ratification of the Constitution, there would have been no central government. Now so does, does that mean that, because we've got a, a, a huge libertarian audience, mm -hmm. and l when you call yourself a libertarian, you're painting yourself with this enormously broad <laughs> brush. And so we have many people who fall much closer to a constitutional libertarian mm -hmm. and others more towards an anarcho-capitalist kind mm -hmm. of libertarian. Um, is it true, it, would it be a true statement to say that um, even though the, the, the federal constitution binds down the federal government, that the independent states do have the authority to do some things like control gun owner gun ownership for example who has the right to bear arms does the individual state have the right to do something like that well that's that's a pretty deep question actually because it goes into uh, an understanding of the constitution and the bill of rights that we have been extremely negligent about in america uh... we have this argument of does the Constitution bind just the federal government, or does it just bind the states, or, or, or are the states brought in? How does that work? And the reality is, is that we're not asking the right questions. The Declaration of Independence, see our states were created on July 2nd, 1776, through the ratification of the Lee Resolution. The Declaration of Independence announced the passage of the Lee Resolution, declared to the world what we had done. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed and when any form of government becomes destructive of these means so our rights do not come from government and they do not come from documents the only reason we create any government on the planet is to secure our rights. And when any form of government becomes destructive of our rights, it is the right then, and the duty, Jefferson would say later, of the people to alter or abolish it. So what we have to really understand is, what are the inalienable rights of the people? Samuel, yeah. Adams, Samuel Adams wrote in 1772, he said, Among the natural rights of the colonists are these, first life, secondly liberty, third property, together with the right to protect and defend them in the best means possible. Because if you don't have the right to life, then you're dead. If you don't have the right to liberty, then you're a servant. If you don't have the right to secure property, then there's no way you're going to live and, you're, and you're, you are a subject to whoever owns the property that you have. If you don't have the right to defend these things, then you're a slave. If you, have to, if you don't have a right, you have to ask permission. So if I have to ask permission to the government to protect my life, my liberty, or my property, then I am not a free man. And so the question is, do the states 
have the authority to control gun ownership? I would say no, because it's an inalienable right. The problem is uh, you lose your liberty when you harm somebody else. If I use a gun to hurt you, then I have forfeited my liberty. Why? And that's why. Because that's the natural law. Natural law, is, uh, as um, John Locke explains it, and the art framers go on again, is, is that liberty knows no bound other than that you cannot harm another. Because then if I can freely take your life, then you no longer have a right to it. So it requires, see, liberty and freedom are not the same thing. Freedom means I'm free to lie, and I'm free to steal, and I'm free to murder. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Liberty is freedom plus morality. Whatever is that moral compass that says, I am free to do whatever I want. But you know, there's some things that I won't do because they're wrong. There's some things that I won't do because I don't want somebody else to do them to me. And it's a respect for someone else's property boundaries. Mm -hmm. And in the eyes of our framers, property wasn't just the place where you stepped your feet. Property, uh, just, um, James Madison wrote a brilliant paper on property in 1792, uh, I think. He said, property is not just land. Property is, is the product of your labor. The property is, is your opinions. Property is your religious beliefs. Property is your expression of those religious beliefs. Property is everything that you yourself conceive and use and make. And uh, he said, this is not a just government when government can take that property from mm -hmm. you. And so we have to understand that on an individual level, I don't have the authority to reach into your pocket and take your money from me. That's not right, is it? Would no. You? no, that would be wrong. All government power emanates from the individual. The government has no power unless the individual possesses it. But when a government becomes unlawful is when it starts doing things to people that I can't do to you. Let's talk about what's going on in Oregon, because I know that you're headed up there, that you've been invited by a group of the landowners to talk and discuss what the true limits of government, government authority to own land are. Mm -hmm. And in watching the video that, that enticed me to give you a call, you made a lot of very intriguing points about the government's mm -hmm. ability or lack thereof uh, to own land outside of Washington, D.C. Can you kind of share with me a little bit about what the government has done, how they have violated the Constitution, and what you think needs to happen in, in order for, for, a, for things to be made right? Well, the Constitution, like I said before, is a contract. And in interpreting the contract, we have to remember that there are certain principles of, in, of interpretation laid down in contract law for centuries. And the very first principle of interpreting contract law is that you have to go to the drafters of the contract. It's a legal principle called the meeting of the minds. So lawyers and judges, when they want to understand how a contract works, they don't get to sit around and make it up as they go. By law, they have to go to the drafters of the contract mm. to understand the segments in the contract, the language in the contract, the application of the contract. Well, the irony, irony is, is the Constitution is the only contract in the United States where judges and lawyers refuse to apply contract law. But contract law dictates that if we want to understand how this power works, because the Tenth Amendment tells us the powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. So what power went where? How do we know? Well, we go to the drafters of the contract. 
which are the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, the notes that Madison kept on the debates, the letters that they wrote to the, each other. They weren't doing that because they were vain. They were doing that because they were establishing a legal record. Madison explains something very important in Federalist 45. He says, the powers delegated to the federal government are few and defined. They are external objects, war, peace, negotiation, foreign commerce. And he says, the powers reserved to the states are everything else. And he makes a list. And right there, enumerated in that list, is property. Property is reserved to the states. Even Jefferson, in speaking about territory, said that territories were held in trust by the federal government on behalf of the states. And once they became states, then the federal government was to never exercise authority over that property again. What do you say to the person who says, well, yeah, but, I mean, how can you, if, if the federal government purchases territory, in my mind, if the government does not have the right to own property, then it shouldn't have the right to purchase property. Therefore, things like the Louisiana Purchase would, would be, in a sense, be unconstitutional and illegal mm -hmm. for them to make such a purchase. Is, am I correct in that assumption? Was there, was there, were there mistakes being made in terms of constitutional interpretation that far back, or is there something mm -hmm. I don't understand? There were mistakes being made about constitutional interpretation from the very beginning. In uh, 1798, James Madison is arguing before the Congress uh, through the House of Representatives that they can't take the money from the people in the name of taxes and subsidize private industries. So from the very beginning, Madison's saying, look, you guys are trying to use this general welfare clause in a way that we never intended. And then John Adams, you know, he jumped the rails with the Alien and Sedition Acts. And so what we have to understand is these men, once they got into power, sometimes things went a little crazy. Cause sure. It's a whole different story when you're a man and you're wielding power and you, you have to be checked so by that way. So you're saying that the mere purchase of territory is unconstitutional. Am I understand? I mean, just, I want to clarify mm -hmm. what you mean. It, are you because you're the the quote you just said was a the territories are to be held. Well, okay. So Article Four, Section Three, Clause Two, uh, mentions that the federal government has the authority to have territories. Okay. Okay. So in Article Four, Section and Three, Clause Two, and what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay. Help me clarify. A that territory, which Article Three, Section Article Four, Section Three, Clause Two. The territory, if you look at grammar, meant a lot to our framers. They didn't do anything on, right. on accident. So territory is capitalized, and that's not just whatever you want it to be. Territory is the land that has been purchased by the Union, okay? Because the federal government doesn't really exist outside the authority of the Union. So the territory is land purchased by the Union to be held on behalf of the states so that we could have uh, a way to expand the United States and bring new states in. And so that what that wasn't money that wasn't a purchase made by the federal government then it was a purchase made by the collective <laughs> states. Okay, so here's the problem in the way that we think, right? Right. And uh, there's something I'm not I'm not getting. Who is the federal government? Well, it's the it's the it's the states. Right. right. So the legally constitutionally speaking, there is nothing that the federal government does of its own of its own accord. But they have the they have the ability to tax, correct? So this is Not this of is, their own accord. Okay. Everything that the federal government does is done through the House of Representatives and the Senate. Right. The House of Representatives is the direct representation of the people, and the Senate 
prior to the 17th Amendment, was supposed to be the direct representatives of the, of the states. states. Right. And so anytime uh, taxing and spending, which is solely left in the House responsibility under Article 1, Section 7, was to take place is because it was done through the consent of the people. And anything done to, uh, on behalf of the states was done through the Senate. That's why treaties, treaties require two-thirds of the Senate to agree because a treaty is an agreement between the states as a whole yeah. and a foreign government. Right. So we, we have to sort of shirk off this, this, this mindset that we have that the federal government is some kind of, a, of an independent entity that runs right. around and does what it's supposed to do. It's, it's part of the reason that it's jumped its rails. We've given it, we've animated it with a life that it just simply doesn't possess. Well, it really, has, it really has kind of become mm -hmm. its own thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because you go and you have your election, and we're in the middle of one right now, and unfortunately, I, I get the feeling that this election is going to be a lot like every other one we've seen, where we elect a bunch of people who promise us what we want to hear, and then they go and disappear for the next two to six years before they come back and tell us again that they're in a sense, they're agents for the federal government. They're in no way tied to the states, other than the fact that they have to come back to their home district. And, uh, and it's, I guess... Let me, let me shift gears and ask you a different question, then we'll roll back around, because mm -hmm. I really want to talk about what the solutions are, and I know right. you've got a great book where you cover all, a lot of solutions, but I want to ask a little bit about agencies in, in the federal government. I find one of the most aggravating things to me is when we look at agencies that write, le write not legislation, but write rules for how companies can conduct themselves, who write penalties for fines that will be incurred, who oversee and, and check on companies to make sure that they're following the rules that these agencies set up. And these agencies are a collection of unelected bureaucrats who, in a sense, operate beyond our reach as individual Americans to have any effect on. Was that part of the founders' intent for the Constitution, or is this a matter of Congress delegating its authority, its authority illegally to a third party. It was absolutely not an intent, and it's not in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, uh, government regulation of private business on all level was particularly offensive to our framers. It's one of the reasons uh, that we have, that we engaged in our independence. If you read the Declaration of Independence, there's a grievance against regulatory agencies right in there. He has established uh, uh, numerous new offices sending hither forth uh, uh, officers to eat out our substances. And, and it was all about the government coming in and, and raiding our businesses and regulating our businesses and, and, and taking our rights away. Because you see, when government regulates business, you don't own your business. You merely operate your business at the permission of the government because it just takes one regulation that you can't or won't comply with and then you have nothing. You have right. no livelihood. But it is even more so not in the federal constitution because there's no power delegated to the federal government to do this. Remember, Madison tells us in 45, the powers delegated to the federal government are external objects, war, peace, negotiation, foreign commerce, Everything else is reserved to the states. The lives, the liberties, the properties, the prosperity, the internal order improvement of the state. That's what he says. All these things. Everything else. EPA is not war, peace, negotiation, foreign commerce. It is not a foreign action. The FDA 
the ATF, the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, the Department of Interior, all of these powers are powers that are to be reserved in the states. They are not delegated to the federal government at all. So they're completely unconstitutional from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that we operate regulation with the force of law, we have now created a situation where we have legislation without representation because, you know, those regulations are written by no one you've elected. And that's the way I've always seen it. I've seen mm -hmm. that as a gross, I mean, that's the very thing that we fought a revolution for, mm -hmm. was to be able to be represented mm -hmm. and, and have our voices heard. And now we have untold number of bureaucracies. We even took a look at agencies. The federal government doesn't even know how many agencies it has. It has so many and sub-agencies and sub-agencies inside of that. And you have no representation there anymore. Well, and that's why part of what's going on with the politics in Washington, D.C. is just an illusion. Uh, the House alone has the power of the purse. So all budgets are controlled by the House. Article 1, Section yeah. 7 says that the House uh, will control the purse. It says the Senate may offer amendments, right. but amendments offered by the Senate don't have to be accepted by the House. Right. So the House budget is as it stands, and as a matter of fact, there is no a constitution. There is no constitutional authority for the president to have a veto over the budget. The president has no say over the budget whatsoever constitutionally. So if our conservatives in the House really were, did not like Obamacare really did not like the actions of the EPA or any of these other agencies, they could defund them tomorrow. Yeah. And they should, because yeah. they're unconstitutional. There's no authority for them. And if we, can you imagine, if we operated constitutionally, all these agencies that nobody even knows how many exist would not exist. The federal government wouldn't need the money that it asks for. All that money would be put back into the states. The states would have control over their land. The states would have control over their businesses. The states would have control over the environment. The states would have control over whatever it is, tobacco, whatever industry, whatever. They would have the opportunity to have that control. And our framers wanted that in the states because you have control over your county commissioner, yeah, your city councilman, The your closer they are to you, yeah. the more control you have over them. So all we have is in the, in the federal government is, is, is a machine built to maintain its power, to maintain its authority, to, to actually expand its power and authority. If we did not have unconstitutional federal agencies, executive orders would be no big deal. Yeah, because there's no way to enforce them. I, I look mm -hmm. at one, for example, that's really bothered me because we took a look at the, the recent uh, Obamacare, or sorry, not Obamacare, but Obama's recent executive order on gun control. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is Congress intentionally writes vague law. Mm -hmm. That way they can be nonspecific. They then turn it over to an agency to interpret and to write regulation and rules for. They're further keeping them away from having to be responsible for right, what they Right, that's the wrote. whole thing. We're supposed yeah. to, oh, no, it wasn't us. Oh, it no, was, that's yeah, not what I meant. Yeah, oh, no, they, 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 shame on them mm -hmm. for doing that. Uh, Re-elect me. And then you've got Obama come in, and he comes in, and, and he essentially, from what I can tell in reading the documents, muddies the waters. Mm -hmm. It says, well, you have to register as a gun dealer if you make money selling guns. However, you don't necessarily have to make money to be fined, and these are felonies. Uh, you, there's no standard by the number of guns that you have to sell before you qualify. There's essentially no standard. It's a vague law. It's a piece of paper that essentially says to the holder, 
I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to come in as an individual working for an agency and I'm going to look at what you're doing and I have all of the freedom and liberty that I want to decide whether or not you're going to fall under my boot or not. Mm -hmm. And when we show up in court for me to challenge you after you've stepped all over me, I have no ground to stand on because the, the document, the, the executive order or the law that was written was so vaguely written as to be interpreted however the agency saw fit. Is that what, have I fairly well, well it, encapsulated it's, it? It's even worse than that, to be honest with you, because if you challenge a federal regulation, you don't go to a regular court. You go to an administrative law court, and the administrative law court is built by the agency that created the regulation whose judge is employed by the agency, whose only job is to determine whether the agency followed its regulations or not. So the agency has its own, has the own court, their own court oh, system. Oh, yeah, it's a complete extra-constitutional, unconstitutional court system. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, we have had people challenging the EPA, and they have challenged the EPA all the way to the Supreme Court. And the decision before the Supreme Court was whether these people had the right to sue the EPA beyond the administrative law courts or not. So they had to take an administrative law challenge all the way to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to say, okay, now you can sue the Supreme, uh, you can sue the EPA. And then they got to start the process they start all over, over again. again. Mm -hmm. It's completely tyrannical. And the bottom line is this, they have no authorization to exist. Alexander Hamilton, who is our biggest government guy, uh, that that's involved in the writing of the Federalist Papers and all of this, who by today would be considered a conservative based on big government standards. He wrote in Federalist uh, Paper 78, he said, no law contrary to the Constitution can be valid. He said, and, and then he gives this warning. He says, if you allow uh, laws contrary to the Constitution to be valid, he said, you will allow the deputy to be greater than the principal, the servant above his master, and before too long, the representatives will feel themselves superior to the people themselves. And this was Hamilton. Hamilton was not a small government guy. No. He, he very much believed in strong central power. Yeah, but by our standards. By, not even by our yeah, standards. Yeah, not no, by no, our standards. He would still be a conservative. But his closing statement in that idea was, and what you will do is you will set people up to live in a government where the government will not only seek the power to do things it's not allowed, it is not uh, entitled to do, but it will then do things that it is absolutely forbidden to do. Gun control is absolutely forbidden. Well, that's where we are absolutely now. Absolutely forbidden, absolutely, and why? And it's not because the Constitution is inadequate. Right. It's because the people have failed to be diligent, have failed to protect their liberties. We, we don't know what liberty is. We can't define it, so we can't defend it. And we have lost the proper structure of a constitutional republic. Our states have been turned into colonies, and we have been subsequently turned into subjects, where we all feel helpless and overwhelmed because we're alone fighting mm -hmm. the government. It's not supposed to be that way. We've come full circle now because one of your first questions was, do the people stand alone or are the states supposed to be doing that? Well, the answer is the people have to stand alone when the states won't. But the whole purpose of creating the states was to secure our rights and to maintain, because remember the states created the mm -hmm. federal government and the states were supposed to be keeping their, their creation under control. 
Well, you're taking a very revolutionary tone now with that, with that statement that the people must stand when the states will not. So let's talk a little bit about solutions. <laughs> Revolutionary. You know, I'm called radical too, well, but it's, yeah, it's no, really it's, sort of interesting that ideas that have been mainstream for thousands, for hundreds of years, now in our little brief period of 50 years, is now termed radical. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, 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 um, I couldn't agree more with, with your interpretation of where we are. Uh, and I think that most of the people who watch this show are going to be staunch supporters of what you're saying and, mm -hmm. and what you believe and, and it's what we advocate every day on on the program but how do we a lot of people have been talking about constitutional conventions mm -hmm. um, you just uh, you know there are some people who in Oregon who've decided that the best thing that they can do is is an armed standoff mm -hmm. what's the right decision talk to me about the book the book is sovereign duty mm -hmm. and you can pick it up on Amazon or you can pick it up on your website chrisannhall.com but talk to me about the solutions. How do we get back? Because it's, and I don't, we've built this monster. We've allowed this monster to grow. Thousands of agencies. The government circumventing its authority at every turn. The president just deciding to arbitrarily uh, write law, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. How, how do we get back to where we need to be? Well, uh, what we, Samuel Adams said, uh, no people will tamely, sur tamely surrender their liberties when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. He said, on the contrary, when a people become universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink underneath the own, their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. We do need a revolution in America, but it's a revolution of the mind. We don't need a bloody revolution because we're not a kingdom. We are a constitutional republic. There are peaceful means by which we can re, uh, take back our control and put government back in its, in its intended and created limited defined box. What are they? So first we have to understand the sovereignty of the states and the obligation of the states to uh, keep the federal government in its limited box in order to preserve the republic. So there are on the, on the state level, there are two options. The states must refuse to comply with any law, federal law, or any federal regulation that is not specifically enumerated and authorized in the Constitution. Not by opinion of the courts, because the courts do not have the authority to expand the power of the federal government. Right, as we discussed. Uh, yeah. Madison said in 17... Uh, no, in, in, in 1800, he said, if the decisions of the judiciary be raised above the sovereign authority of the states, then the judiciary will become just as tyrannical as the executive yeah. or the legislative. Because we created three branches of government, right? Legislative, so executive, and judicial. What you're saying is it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court nope, says. It does not. The states can say, look, we don't care mm -mm. what you say. We're rejecting your opinion, mm -hmm. and we're going to can do whatever I, we can want. Can I say bravo there? Yeah. Because it's an opinion. Yeah. Too many times we have people running around talking about court rulings yeah. and courts making law, right? Courts don't issue rulings. Kings issue rulings. Yeah. Courts issue opinions. Courts can't make law. If courts make law, that is a per se violation of separation of powers and is right off unconstitutional. How many people have you have heard say abortion is the supreme law of the land? Yeah. It's not. It's an opinion by the Supreme Court. There's been no legislation passed, no laws. It was an opinion by the Supreme Court. And yet, because we have been uh, raised 
through our education system since 18, well, probably since 1818, uh, to believe that there's a judicial supremacy, we have by default created an oligarchy, and that's not who we're supposed to be. So the first thing that needs to happen is the states mm -hmm. are going to have to step up. That That's you're right. going to have to have legislature, legislators at the state level mm -hmm. who are willing to look to the federal government and say, no more. No more. We're, we're just not going to accept it no, anymore. No, you don't have any authority in the Constitution to regulate firearms, so your firearm laws are not applicable here. Mm -hmm. You have no authority in the Constitution to regulate the environment of the state. We are fully capable of maintaining our own land and our own environment and just take back the powers. Don't listen to the Federal Department of Transportation. Take care of yourself. I have always wondered why somebody, a governor or a legislator, legislative branch in the states didn't just stand up and say, yeah, we're just not going to do that. Oh, yeah, we, we, we heard what you said, but what, no. And well, then watch what happened, because the, the federal government would have no recourse other than violence. Oh, they don't even have that recourse, really, because in truth, they don't have the manpower, the resources to, to uh, inf inflict violence right. on the states. They uh, rely on co-opting the state and local governments to do their bidding for them. I mean, look at Kansas. Kansas passes a law that says there'll be no federal firearm laws uh, enforced in our state. Yeah. Eric Holder writes Kansas a threatening letter. Kobach writes back and says, hey, we, we see you have an opinion, but your opinion means nothing to us because we're a sovereign state. And if you don't like the way we think we're doing things and you don't like our stand, why don't you just come back to Kansas and see what you can do about it? We're not watching on, on Fox or CNN the troops coming into yeah. Kansas because they're a schoolyard bully. You got to love that Chris Kobach. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I'm speaking at the 10th Amendment dinner in Topeka uh, yeah. tomorrow night, and we get to speak together. And I was, I was on his radio show the other day, too. So it was cool. He was one of the first guests I had on, on, my, on my radio show, my podcast. And uh, he does have the radio show on the weekends. Um, I remember when he ran for Senate or Congress. Mm -hmm. It was all those many years ago, and uh, I had a chance to meet him. I've always liked him. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's good that we've got somebody like him fighting the federal government here in Kansas. But, uh, okay, so let's say that we get to that point, and now we've got, is that enough? Is it enough to just say, if, uh, because it sounds like, hey, if we could just get enough states to say, go screw yourself, uh, we'd be done with it. Well, it's, it, it obviously isn't as simple as it sounds because we have state legislators that don't believe they can do their job without the federal government. And we have uh, local governments as well that don't think they can do anything without federal money. So right. we're going to have to pull the plug on the addiction. Right? We're going to have to convince people. And the irony is that, that people are unplugging. Uh, local governments are unplugging. State governments are unplugging. And they're finding out that if they refuse federal money, they're actually making more money. They have more revenue than if they take it because compliance with the federal regulations costs more than the money they get. Right. That's the whole scheme with Obamacare. You get all this funding for the first three years, and then after the first three years, the federal government doesn't give you any more funding, but you still got to fund the whole program. Yep. It's just a racket. And that's not that's not the only program they do that with. And, oh yeah. And I think that the education pro programs are rifled with that. Right. And they 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 do this they do this pass through where they tax the people mm -hmm. at the federal level, then they redistribute that money back to the states. The states become reliant upon that cash, mm -hmm. and they think, well, if I if I 
that's the first thing the federal government wants to do is pull the money away. If you don't do what we say, we'll take the money back. And that, in, in a sense, ties the states to the federal mm -hmm. government and, and makes them complicit. Yeah, and we've got to, we've got to educate, like Samuel Adams said, we've got to uh, diffuse the knowledge necessary to uh, embolden the people to tell their legislators we don't want this money. We got to get our school boards unhooked. We got to get our county commissions, our city councilmen unhooked. We got to get unhooked. That's just the whole problem. And that's not going to come without, without the proper education. What about the Constitutional Convention? Are you a fan of something like that? Well, the con bring, and, uh, bring the states back to, in a sense, rewrite the Constitution. It seems to me there's a lot of pros and cons to that because if you have a, a state convention uh, where you're going to write amendments, I think that Mark Levin wrote a book recently mm -hmm. where he outlines the changes he would make and you open up that Pandora's box, there's a risk you may get a lot mm -hmm. that you don't want. Right, and we, we'll, if you'll allow me to speak very precisely, because there are certain different ideas about what we're talking about, and some of them simply uh, are error. So we'll, okay. be very, we'll be very specific the way we speak. Article 5 in the Constitution is the only means by which we can legally amend the Constitution. And so what we're, what we're talking about is the portion of Article 5 where we call a convention of the states. Right. Okay? There are other camps that want to do it other ways. But if you are not following Article 5, then you are illegally attempting to amend the Constitution. Okay. So uh, we, Article 5 was placed within our Constitution by our framers uh, as a means to amend the Constitution, not without controversy. Our framers had a lot of concerns about Article 5 Convention. George Mason was very concerned that Congress would usurp the whole process, robbing the sovereignty of the states, and then just amend the Constitution to favor the federal government. James Madison was afraid uh, of who would become the delegates in a convention. Uh, just to paraphrase Madison's argument, he says, look, the only reason we've been able to successfully have this convention is because we just came from a bloody revolution. And that, the horrors of what we saw, have allowed us to stay focused on liberty. We've been able to have men put aside their ambitions and their greed and their avarice and focus on the good of liberty. And Madison says, I fear in the future without that kind of motivation a convention would simply devolve into a political uh, circus. You would have, he says, the delegates would be built of the same people who created the problem, asked to fix the problem. It would be nothing but a bunch of people getting together who wanted to enrich themselves in power and wealth and influence, and, and it would be a political battle and not a battle for liberty. And so I believe that if we're going to engage in a convention, We've got to make sure that we are covering all the bases and we know how to respond to them. Uh, we don't just simply go into a convention and say, well, we'll do what we want because we're the states and mm -hmm. who cares what Congress says? Right. Because that's naive and it's foolish and it's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, on my radio show, I did a five-day series on, on the Article 5 convention. And it's not the series that everybody's doing. What I did was I took... The, the documents that Congress has been publishing since the 1950s on what they think a convention will look like. Because they, they have a process in there. You can't push Congress out of a convention. It's written into the Constitution. Right. And so what happens since 1950s, they've been having um, 
experts come in and advise the House and the Senate and everybody on these things, and they've published these documents. And it's absolutely amazing because the language of the Article 5 says, uh, upon this, that, and the other, Congress shall call an invention, a convention. It is amazing how Congress, since the 1950s, through their experts, have defined the word call. It is fundamentally explosive to see the power that they have seized in just that word call. And so uh, what there's you, can also... You, can you elaborate on that at all? Oh, well, yeah. Well, just very generally, yeah, because they believe the word call means that they not only uh, have the authority to approve the petitions by the states, but to determine the criteria of the petitions. So if the petitions are not submitted in the form that the Congress wants, then they can dismiss the petitions and then the state has to start over again. They can create a process where the petitions expire. So you have to build so many petitions, 36 states, right? So you get finally get 36. So they say, oh, I'm sorry, your first three have expired. Now you have to start over again. And then the, they uh, interpret this word call to not just mean that they are the uh, organizers, but they are also not just the secretaries, but they're the, the planners, the dictators, and the rulers over the entire process. So they get to decide whether it's a general convention or a limited convention. They get to decide which amendments will be considered for ratification. They get to decide the process of ratification. And then once the states decide which uh, amendments they want to vote to ratify, Congress can come back in and say, oh no, those amendments that you've chosen, this one, A, B, C, and D, well, they're actually not uh, amendments to the Constitution. They're, they're procedural suggestions. Well, that sounds completely contrary to the very rationale for having <laughs> such a convention. Was because the only reason you would need to have one is because the federal government had, had so usurped its own authority. That's right. And now they have, I just... So and that was George Mason's yeah. concern. I yeah. mean, that's exactly what he said would happen if we had a, a way to amend the Constitution in this and so manner. Then I know you've got a whole book on yeah. this, but yeah. if, we, if we summed it up, I, I guess your suggestion is the states really just need to take back their own authority and just mm -hmm. refuse to allow the federal government to to, to have a say-so in, in the way they run their states. Well, I believe a convention um, to... I, I sort of stand with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson believed that the convention would be most useful uh, not in limiting the government because Jefferson, Jefferson knew that of the parchment barriers. He said that uh, impeachment was just a scarecrow right. and all these things. So, so Jefferson had a good handle on, on the human nature aspect of it. But he believed that the Article 5 convention would be best suited for when the people want to expand liberty, liberty and then limit government even more. And I think over the last few hundred years, we can see where our framers maybe uh, didn't do things as precisely as they way, the way they right. needed to. So an Article 5 convention, in order to amend the Constitution, is, is a long-term process. Once the convention is called, you probably won't see a real amendment for 10 years. Right. It's, it's a long-term project. I would love to see an amendment to the Constitution that further explains, as Madison explained in the debate that I told you over the subsidizing of private right. industry, it's called the Cod Fishery Bill Debate. Uh, I would like to see an amendment to the Constitution that says, hey, the General Welfare Clause, the Necessary Proper Clause, the Tax and Spending Clauses, the Commerce Clauses, those are not powers. 
those are descriptions and the purpose of the powers to be exercised. And so we need to define these clauses the way Madison did and, and, and make sure that that's clear because that's where most of the usurpation of the state power has, has occurred in turning clauses into powers, which they're not. So if we're going to have a convention, that's my vote, right? Mm -hmm. But we've got a long-term project on that, and we've got to make sure that we know how to deal with Congress, and we've got to know how to, create, how to elect delegates to a convention who are not going to devolve into some uh, Republican versus Democrat political circus who drag the convention out for 30 decades because it's a money cow. It's a cash cow, right? right. And then in the meantime, right now, this is the right now solution, the state stepping up and asserting their sovereignty, saying, look, this is not delegated to you, which means it is reserved to us. The word reserved, by definition, means we have exclusive dominion and authority over it, and we're not going to let you use it anymore. And so the, the problem is you've got you to combat the ignorance along with that, because somebody's going to say, well, we can't have the states just nullifying federal law. There'll be anarchy everywhere. Problem is, when the states are stepping up and saying we will not comply with federal law, it's the unconstitutional ones. Yeah. We are not breaking the law. It's the federal government that has already broken the law by creating agencies and regulations and laws that do not comply with the Constitution. That's what Article 6, uh, Clause 2 says. Well, Chris Ann, it's, it's been wonderful having you here. I really appreciate <laughs> I feel appreciate like I've you. talked too no, much. <laughs> no, you have. The, it, that's why you're here. Yeah. It, nobody, they're not interested in what I have to say when, when, uh, when it comes to the Constitution. And I would I could tell everybody to go out and get the book, Sovereign Duty. Um, check it out, and, uh, and we will hopefully hear more from you in the near future. And I wish you the very best of luck. Oh, thank well, you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Perfect. Okay. Did That's you have a it. clock somewhere where you were keeping time? <clears throat> we're oh. almost an hour. <laughs>